Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Heeks. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Thank you guys so much for tuning in once again. We have a great episode for you here today. We have Mr. Jesse Knox out of Iowa. He uh, owns a, about a 135-acre farm out there, and you may recognize that last name, Knox. He's the son of Paul Knox, who was uh, a Habitat inspiration out there on the Internet and in person to those who are lucky enough to know him. Uh, we cover a bunch of cool things in this episode. We talk about, you know, who is Jesse, where is he from, talk about Jesse's podcast, and we get into who Jesse's dad is, Mr. Paul Knox. Uh, he was known as Doubletree on a lot of internet forums over the years, or Lit Creek. And then uh, he was just very inspiring and helpful is probably an understatement. Um, if, if you go on some of the forums, the old QDMA forums, there's the Iowa Sportsman Forum, even Michigan Sportsman Forum, the one that I'm pretty familiar with. He was all over there just helping people. He had a real simple way of uh, expressing the complicatedness that, that some certain things like maybe switchgrass or or uh, apple trees can have or, or clover. He really broke it down. Quick reference, guys. Just made it very simple for, for everybody out there. We also talk about some current winter habitat projects that Jesse's working on for him and his clients. Uh, we get into a awesome 2020 Iowa buck and the story behind that hunt. And then, you know, we just we do a little tribute towards the end and we – Give you guys a sneak peek at a project that we're working on um, coming up soon. So, Jesse Knox from Iowa, very excited. This is a great episode. Thank you guys for coming back once again. I want to give a shout-out to the listeners who are leaving us awesome reviews on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. I am sending out decals again this week, free decals, to anyone who leaves us a great review. There's a link below in the show notes. If you're listening to this podcast, scroll down. Leave us a review there, put your name on there, hit us up on Facebook, and you'll get a free 5-inch Habitat podcast decal in the mail. Now, speaking of uh, links below, there's some other links down there. You can see you know, a link to our website where we have our land plans, all of our podcast episodes, our blog, our Habitat journal up there, um, all of our gear, you know, hats. We've got brand new hoodies out there if you guys want a new hoodie. Awesome uh, American flag and Habitat podcast style hoodies. 
on the website, HabitatPodcast.com, the link below. And then again, you have uh, something new from us. You'll hear about it in this episode here. It's an Amazon affiliate link. Um, I know these aren't new to anybody out in the world, but if you shop on Amazon, or if you're like me, your wife shops on Amazon, you know, every day, every other day, then if you could just click this link before you head over to the Amazon app, it'll take you to the app, and you buy, you know, a $20 item. Well, we get a little bit of that commission from Amazon to help support the podcast. The cool thing is your cost on an item does not go up at all. We just take a little bit from Amazon, right? So if you remember someday and you want to, you know, help us out, another way to, to help support the podcast, you know, the Amazon affiliate link below, click that and buy whatever you want to buy. And uh, like I said, your price does not go up at all to do this. It's the same. We just take a little bit from Amazon. Amazon pays us a very tiny commission. But that, over the years, it might add up and help support us, um, you know, in some of the stuff we're doing in terms of website hosting or um, website fees or editing, software, microphones, anything along the lines that we need to help put this content out there for you guys a little bit here and help. So we'll get into that in the episode a little bit, so hold tight. This episode is brought to you by Killer Food Plots. Now, I stopped over at Killer Food Plots in Muskegon, Michigan today and got loaded up for 2021 spring food plots, fall food plots, uh, soil defender, aqua shield. Guys, his products are top-notch quality. Soil Defender is a uh, liquid foliar fertilizer that you can put on your food plot before planting and then foliar after planting while the plants are growing. That is Soil Defender. It's a great organic fertilizer to pair with Groganics, which is Nick's other fertilizer there, and just really outdoes a lot of other synthetic fertilizers in the market. And you're putting some organic stuff in the ground versus synthetic. So that's always cool, too, these days. Um, so check them out at KillerFoodPlots.com. You know, be sure if you go to KillerFoodPlots.com and you end up buying something, use the code HP10%. That gives you 10% off and free shipping. And, guys, all that information, again, is right below you in the show notes. So spring food plots on the way. I will be frost-seeding clover and chicory. Next week, I frost-seeded some switch already, and, uh, you know, it's here, guys. Let's keep it going. So I also want to thank Packer Max Cultipackers, HuntWise, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, Morris Nursery, and Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction. Guys, if you could help support the people that help support the podcast, we'd love you for it. It really helps us. Thank you so much for coming back and listening once again. Here we go. Jesse Knox out of Iowa. All right, Jesse. We are rolling, and uh, thanks for helping out, my friend. Oh, thanks for the invite, guys. I'm really honored. Not a problem at all. And, Brian, glad to have you on. I know you're burning the candle at both ends this week, as am I, and probably Jesse, too. I feel like everybody I talk to these days is just grinding. Yeah, it was uh, 62 degrees here today, and I think I went to work. It might have been, I don't know if that was before the weekend, but it was like zero degrees not many days ago, and then it was 62 <laughs> today, so nice. it was nice to get some fresh air and get some things done outside for a day. Awesome. 62, good night. Yeah, we had we had 45, and I was pretty much in my bathing suit walking around, <laughs> you know? 
That's awesome. I, I appreciate both of you guys hopping on. And uh, our special guest tonight, we have Mr. Jesse Knox. Welcome to the show, my friend. And, Thank you again. Uh, you know, we normally start this out with uh, hearing about who our special guest is, a little bit about where they're from. Just kind of paint us a picture on, on who who is Jesse Knox. So I'm just a, a dude from southeast Iowa that has a passion for habitat and uh, and hunting and trapping and everything outdoors. Uh, my dad was Paul Knox, a.k.a. Doubletree, and uh, he had a – this is a short intro for him, I guess, so we get to the real meat and potatoes. He um, had a business called Doubletree Habitat. We managed properties for mainly uh, state whitetail deer hunters. I took over for him in 2013 when he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's or ALS, and I ran that business uh, for about six years, and – Made some stupid mistakes, like just being a young, arrogant, dumb kid and had to learn the hard way, and now I'm just uh, working a full-time job and maybe trying to wiggle my way back into the industry maybe at some time, but right now just uh, raise my family and taking care of the family farm and trying to improve it for habitat and just trying to live the life, man. No, I hear you there. Where at in southeast Iowa are you, if you don't mind? Sure. I'm uh, Right now, I live outside of Fairfield, Iowa. And my farm's actually in Van Buren County. And Van Buren's pretty much, I would think it's pretty well known, you know, like uh, Lee and Tiffany, Humpback County, you know, everywhere there. A lot of their filming's taking place there and other places. But uh, but it's just, I don't know about, I would say my farm would be like 45 to hour north of the Missouri line of that. And it's in the, um, I don't know, maybe an hour west of Illinois, an hour north of Missouri roughly, so... Sure, sure. I'm just trying to figure out where I hunted last year compared to to where you're at. I think. Oh, did you hunt over, Iowa last year? I did. I was over. Um, shoot, I can't even find this thinking map right now. Uh, a little bit further, I think I was in Van Buren. But, oh. Um, the towns were were so small. Bonaparte. We had dinner at Bonaparte oh. one night. Yeah, um, man, that's a great restaurant. Yep. Yeah. It wasn't far from there. I can't even pull up the city I'm looking for, but anyway, it's not like the details get in the way. Uh, great, great part of the world if you like whitetail deer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's kind of neat because where we, Fairfield's, oh, I don't know, it's a small town with a very big head, so um, <laughs> it's like the pandemic is just the worst thing ever. Don't even uh, get started on it. But, yeah. in, but in Van Buren County, everyone's like, COVID, what the hell are you talking about? I'm like, these are my kind of people, man. It's like the world just stops there at Van Buren County. So, <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, nice. uh, yeah, that's that's awesome. We're not even gonna go down that rabbit hole right now, but I, um, I think uh, you're in a pretty awesome part of the country. And and tell us about your family. You have a wife and some kids, or what? Yep, I'm married to my beautiful wife Jessica. Um, we're actually living on their family farm right now. She works on her family's farm. And we have uh, one little girl named Tegan. She's just, oh, God, she's, she just turned six months today. So it's been a half a year, guys. It's crazy. Wow. So, yeah, Congrats. she's doing great. And thank you very much. So it's been a really different but fun change in our life. So. No, that's that's awesome. I uh, My little girls turned seven last weekend. So oh, uh, awesome. I don't know where time actually goes, but right? it's crazy. Just wait. Um, just wait. Uh, I know. Yeah, that's what everybody says, and then all of a sudden they're seven. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah, so man, slow it down. <laughs> I know. it's uh, They're so cool, too, and I got a little boy as well. But good to hear that uh, you know, you're a family man like the rest of us, and um, Southeast Iowa, that's great. Um, 
So what are you doing for a living right now? Are you still in the habitat business or you have a different job or what? Yeah, I kind of, right, I started transitioning out of Doubletree in 18 and uh, I started looking for other work. And right now I work for a, uh, a small family-owned business. They make a uh, chimney camera for inspecting inside of chimneys. Nice. And um, they're literally a mile down the road and they're really laid back people. Um, I, they've been treating me very, very well. And uh, I've kind of, my, my dad used to be a machinist back in the days, so and my uncle's machinist, my, his brother, and it's kind of like this family trade keeps, you don't intend to become machinist, but somehow it keeps popping up. So I've been um, <laughs> learning about, um, re- I had a little CNC background back in school for robotics when I was younger, so it's kind of come back to me, but, you know, just cranking out parts and making uh, assembling stuff, and, you know, and they're, like I said, it's laid back, like, if I got to go do food plots, I mean, it had to take a couple of day guys. They'll be like, yep, yeah, see you later, Jesse. Thanks a lot. So it's pretty, pretty nice. So. No, that is cool. Are you, um, in part of your habitat business, are you doing some installation stuff too, it sounds like? Yeah, I'm, uh, we have this huge CRP sign up. I was talking to one friend of mine who's a contractor and he has damn near a thousand acres. It's like, oh my God. And he has a six foot drill. I'm like, you need to upgrade. <laughs> and, uh. I, uh, my buddy Aaron, who owns Amazura Hybrids in Keosauk, which is in Van Buren County, he's a huge um, supplier for native prairie seeds, and he told me the amount of paperwork he has for signups. He's like, I don't know where to get this done in a year. And um, I had an inside source tell me, don't quote me on this, but um, I think FSA is going to extend the deadline to it definitely because there's so many re-enrollments. So um, my father-in-law loan me some money to buy a 10-foot drill, and we got a really good deal on it, and I'm very grateful and kind of get the back into it, but I'm, you know, looking for extra work because it's extra cash for the family, you know, and uh, we have some extra help at the shop, so this summer I'm hoping just to, you know, take a few weeks and just crank out as many acres as possible, get this bad boy paid, but put some extra money to count, you know, so... I do know. I do know. That's <laughs> that's great. I, now, the, the CRP program, um, you have a lot of people signing up for that, it sounds like. Well, what I understand is it's a lot of re-enrollments. Um, now, my buddy, I was just talking about, his dad got in. He got a really good rate above average. Um, I think someone's a pollinator, so that usually pays a little better. But they've also limited the pollinator. I think it's only 10 acres per farm, or I think – per tract you own, something like that. Pretty minimal, but they pay you good. But, um, but yeah, a lot of the rates have gone down. Um, I love Trump, but Trump wasn't very friendly to the CRP, which is expected, and Biden's not looking very friendly either, just to be honest. And um, uh, it's gone down a little bit. But when you re-enroll your CRP, uh, your rate will double. So, obviously, you know, you might have been paying 110 bucks an acre. Now you're going to pay 220 an acre after you reassign. So there's a, a lot more incentive to re-enroll old CRP than to enroll new CRP, if that makes sense. So I actually do not know that. So I'm glad I asked. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. That's why I was going to say I've had previous clients that, you know, I had clients that were big, you know, uh, high rollers, and uh, some of this paperwork fell through the cracks, and I'd be on and on. you got to get back in the office, re-enroll the CRP. You're going to lose it. And, uh, you know, they waited too late, and they lost, you know, one guy lost 60 acres, one guy lost 100 acres because they just, you know, it's um, – I can't do it for them. That's, you know, that's their responsibility right. as a landowner. All I can do is encourage them because, you know, uh, to me, some of these guys had older CRPs that I just wanted to revamp so badly. There's so much work there. 
and it fell through the cracks. Like, okay, I guess it's got to be farm now, you know? So just usually have six months before your contract expires to re-enroll your land. So guys, if anyone's listening, just keep that in mind. Don't, don't let that, don't let that fall through the cracks. It's a pretty big investment. That's a great tip. That's a great tip. And, um, I, the, the next part about your, your background I want to cover before we keep moving is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how'd you get into hunting and, and, and habitat or when did you start hunting and, and how'd that roll into actually doing the work on your family farm? So, I'll hear about your um, family farm a little bit too. Sure, sure. So my really my dad, you know, he obviously he was a hunter, um, and uh, mostly white-tailed deer. He hunted little turkeys, not little turkeys. Hunted turkeys every now and then, and uh, you know, I'd take along with him when I was a kid. You know, I, I didn't really get a chance to actually hunt, hunt until I was like thirteen or yeah, thirteen. I took my first deer when I was thirteen years old. Um, it was a spike during Iowa youth season, and. Uh, you know, we just kept going, and uh, what really got me in the outdoors, you know, I really enjoyed hunting, but my dad, God bless him, he made everything into work. Everything was work. And even hunting, you know, like I have one buddy, he's all jacked up and excited. He's like, go kill some deer, Jeff, it's going to be a good time. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and my dad's like, we got to be up at 3.30 in the morning. We're going to drive an hour and sit there at 5.30 in the morning until another two hours for the sunrise. And you're like, what? <laughs> I don't know if he was just trying to torment me because he's a dad, which I understand that now as a parent. But at the same time, um, kind of like he just he just didn't he didn't make it a lot of fun. And when I got older and I started to trap and fish more, I'm I'm an outdoorsman. I'm just not a deer hunter. I love to go dove hunting, waterfowl hunting, trapping is a big part of my life. I love when I can go out west hunt my uncle. You know he hunts with hounds and chases, you know, hunts after elk as well. And it's just really cool stuff out there. But, um, you know, that, but working with my dad, with the habitat stuff, you know, he's doing food plots, planting trees, um, and whatnot. And I remember even younger, you know, it was, it was fun. You know, he's on the tractor tilling and be covered in dirt, you know, look like a coal miner when you're done. But as I got older and I started to get out into, you know, going to college and having jobs and, and finally having a full-time job at a pork plant temporarily as a technician, um, you know, I really started appreciating the time I had with my dad and work with my dad and the habitat aspect, but also seeing all the hinge cutting, the prairie establishment, the food plots, all, the, I have thousands of trail camera pictures my dad has collected over the years. I still have a lot of them and seeing that the, the attractiveness of all these different animals. And, you know, I would see bobcats come off our farm and I'm like, this is really cool stuff. I mean, you're building something for the future, not just for me and for my kids, but future wildlife, you know. So that I think it all started there, just doing this stuff day in and day out with my dad and just starting to appreciate it as I got older. So Awesome. That makes perfect sense. Um, and, you know, it, with, with the, the tormenting as, as a kid, it's kind of funny you say that. When I got my girls up for turkey hunting this spring here in – well, last spring in 2020, um, you got to get up pretty early for that. So it's kind of something new and, and something uh, not quite the afternoon hunt in October type of type of ball game, you know? Right, right. Well, you know, you just got to make it fun. You got to make it fun. I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but like my buddy, I got a really good buddy of mine. It's like I've had several men in my life that are like father figures to me. I have several. That, that tells you how many, there's like six or seven. That takes it. That tells you how many men has to take to try to replace my dad. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, my buddy, um, when my dad died, he took me turkey hunting 
I had a ball. He just, you know, joked around, carried on, tell, you know, tell a bunch of lies and just have a great time. But it made me <laughs> want to go out there and, you know, cultivate more good, positive memories instead of just this drudgery, which I'm like, that's not what hunting's about. It's not drudgery. Right. It's supposed to be I, I complicated the, the reason we all hunt. That's all individual um, question we ask ourselves every day in the street stand, right? But, yeah, it just – that was the next drive, just to be out there and creating more good memories, you know? Yeah, for sure. So tell us a little bit about your dad. Was he uh, originally from Iowa? And uh, anything else you'd like no, the listeners it, to know about him? Sure, yeah. he. Uh, we're actually originally from Michigan. My dad was really Yeehaw. hesitant about – Yeah. <laughs> um. Oh, I'm sorry. What'd you say, Jerry? I'm sorry. I said yeehaw. I, I actually, I actually oh, knew okay. that, so I was waiting for that to uh, to come out there. That's great. Uh, that's why I thought you said. I'm like, maybe he didn't say that whole <laughs> time. <laughs> but no, uh, my dad was really funny about people knowing him from Michigan because he just had this idea like they think we're out of state here, we're just buying this land to hunt. I'm like, yeah, we are. <laughs> that's the point you moved to Iowa, you know? Um, All right. But, yeah, but we're originally from Lapeer County. My dad grew up on a small family farm when he, you know, obviously he was a kid. And, uh, you know, my dad had a really strong bond um, with the land and farming. And, um, you know, my dad did kind of like what I did, a little bit of everything. He hound hunted for coons and bears. And then uh, he got into walleye fishing big time. And it's really weird. My dad and I have a common trait. We find something and we get super obsessive about it. And you just lock in on it and try to perfect it. It's a really weird habit we do, but with me, I kind of try to do multiple different things, and my dad would just lock into one thing, like walleye, deer hunting, whatever. Well, he got into bow hunting, and um, he started kind of getting into the whitetail community more and more, and uh, he then realized, oh, wait a minute, I can use my love of farming to help habitat and get in the food plots and soil health and all this other cool stuff. So, you know, over a 20, 30-year period, you know, he just gained lots of experience and knowledge about um, cultivating food plots, taking care of your timber. You know, I think he was one of the – I went, I, I, don't, I, re, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but one of the earlier guys promoting hinge cutting. And, uh, and of course, some perspectives change, and that's totally fine. You know, things move on. But, um, you know, also advocating for switchgrass and trying different food plots like brassicas and grains and, uh, you know, just trying to help folks out. And he was really well known on uh, com, Michigan Sportsman and Outreach Outdoors as Doubletree. And when QDMA had their uh, forums, which I think that's gone now. Um, Lecrim, oh, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's too bad. But his username on there was La Creek, after our local creek that goes through our farm. So, okay. but anyway, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, that was my dad, you know. He, I, you know, he's really funny. He, he had, he'd struggled teaching me, and I don't know because I was just so brain dead and Stubborn, maybe you're just like, I don't want to deal with you. I don't know. But he, he was really good at teaching other people. But I think also, um, you know, I appreciate what my dad was doing, but I think other people were willing to listen and to learn and were hungry for information. And my dad was there at the right place at the right time to share this knowledge with other folks. Like he wanted them to succeed, clearly. You know, like, good Lord, on com. last time I looked, he had, he had a, a pin page of um, – White clover, how to establish white clover. That's over a thousand pages of information on growing 
like clover. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, this stuff, it's like, you know, I trail like my lawn grass, guys, you know. But for some folks that don't know that live in the city, it's like they don't know. You know, I mean, my dad once told me he had a guy call him. And he's like, okay, I got my tractor ready. I got the seed. The fertilizer has been spread. I have the disc hooked up. Now what do I do? My dad's like, well, you start discing. Does that mean screw anything up? No. Just get it in. Get it done. You know? And it, it's just, you know, it's a totally different world for some folks. But my dad was there to help a lot of folks out. So, you know, and, uh, yeah. So, anyway, that's kind of my dad in, in a nutshell, I guess. So, Sure. So what about what year was that that you guys moved to Iowa? 2004. 2004. Okay. Yeah, that's about three years before I bought my first property. I bought it in mm. Ohio. I actually live mm. in western Pennsylvania, just uh, about 20 minutes from the border. And uh, cool. 32 years old, and I found the QDMA forum and immediately started messaging your dad and, and was just – really taken by all the information that he had on there and it really had a huge awesome. impact on my first farm and, and my subsequent farms and other places that I've helped people out with since then for sure. Awesome. That's awesome to hear that. And that's actually where, where Brian and I met was on and, and Al and, and Sam, a couple of our other buddies was on that QDMA mm. forum as well. And um, yeah, he was a wealth of information on there under Lick Creek and, he used to, uh, people refer to as seed mixes and, and everything else, which were, you know, double tree mixes on, on other forums. And um, just, yeah, it was so much information that, like you said, Iowa Whitetail has a whole, a whole, I don't know. A whole corner dedicated. A whole to corner them. called yep. Double yep, Trees double Habitat corner. corner on there. And, um, I mean, like you said, there's, there's nine pages on herbicides. There's 60 pages on clover and 86 pages on switchgrass. I mean, it's, it's pretty neat. So to your point about his impact and, and how he was able to help people, I mean, guys like Brian didn't know how to run a disc. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure, man. I'm just, just kidding, Brian. No, that's, that's <laughs> a true story. He's talking about those city guys. I, you know, my dad grew We're up in somewhere, uh, right? Yeah. My dad was from the inner city of Pittsburgh originally and mm. and uh, he was a huge proponent of spending as much time outside as he could took us camping and fishing and all that but yeah cool. I bought my first tractor and kind of had to learn just what you were talking about Jesse you know hooking it up and trying to figure out as I went yep absolutely so how about uh, maybe a favorite memory you have of your dad that you would like to share with everybody? Oh, man. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Uh, I saw that earlier. And I'm like, man, what is my favorite memory? Um, it could be gosh. one or two or you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, I'm just trying to think. I'm, I'm trying to rack my brain. So my dad and I, had a, we had a funny relationship, and we loved each other very much. But, you know, he was stubborn, and I was stubborn, and we butt heads a lot, you know. <laughs> um, I think one of my actual favorite memories, it was when my dad really started again Doubletree. And uh, it was more of a several memories, I guess, and I don't have to share them all. But they were mainly him finding his purpose in life. As a, as a habitat manager, something he's been, you know, he didn't ask to become a manager. He didn't ask to start managing farms. He just wanted to take care of his own farm. And it was just a really great blessing 
that folks outreached to him, you know, for a few years before it was too late. And just to see that evolution of, you know, my dad just being grateful for what he had, but then his joy coming out of him, being able to do what he loved and help and serve other people. That was the fun. That was a really fun time. That's something I really enjoyed. And I remember, uh, you know, he's having a lot more time and, you know, I was getting to trapping and my dad was always, I don't know, we just had this weird competition, I guess, to like outsmart me as much as he could, which I'm like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, better hobby, you know. But uh, one time he borrowed a cage trap. So I'll show you to catch these damn coons. And he borrowed my cage trap and he started, every day he caught a coon and I forget what he did it with. But man, he just rubbing my face because I'd be trapped. I was still so new to trapping and had this very uh, oblivious how it's not difficult to trap a coon. They're just trying to the right place at the right time. understand that, you know, but, um, man, he would just rub that in. I guess that was one that come to mind, but if I think of a better one, I'll, I'll let you guys know. So. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, for sure. So when did you guys decide to start, uh, helping out on other people's property? And was that like well, a formal business that you started with the yeah, habitat? Yeah, it's, it's Yep, it's still incorporated. It's a Category S business. Um, it's official business. Um, it was, I think he established it in 2013, but he was doing the work, uh, I think, 2011, 2010. We had one gentleman from Mississippi who was a really good friend of my dad, and, you know, he knew my dad from the forums. They had a really great friendship, and I remember going to his property. My God, it was covered in honey locusts, and my dad was just like, oh, boy. And, you know, he put me on the plow, and, he got the trees cut, and I plowed up the stumps. That was kind of the first jobs we ever did. And then over time, we had literally guys from down the road, guys from Florida, guys from Wisconsin, from Pennsylvania, call us up and go, hey, I own like a few hundred acres down the road from you. Could you come take a look? And they could talk. I'm like, man, you, you know a lot. Would you take care of this? You know? And and uh, <laughs> that's how it kind of started. It was just word of mouth. And right. I had lots of social capital on these websites and uh, had a good reputation, you know? And uh, – I, I took over in 2013 when he was diagnosed with ALS, and I, I uh, that was, we kind of did it together. And, you know, originally I had a technician job at his pork plant, and I was working the weekend shift at night. And I, I'm the dummy that chose that shift because I, I wanted the four days off, or, yeah, four days off the week, which is great, but your sleep schedule was just out of whack. But, sure. the, uh, but the weeks I helped my dad, I was just helping him. And it was, it was pretty cool. I learned a lot. And we bonded some more doing that, but, uh, and I learned how to run the equipment and, um, learned about TSI and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but I went full time on, um, I left that job March 15th, 2013, the very next, that same day after getting out third shift, I was running chainsaw with my dad, you know, so. Excellent. So did you take a break from that for a while? You said completely. Yeah, I just made not, yeah, I have one client I'm helping on his farm. He's right down the road from my place, and I enjoy his farm. It's been one of my – they're like a passion project. You know, the food plots have been right. one of my best food plots I like taking care of. We're, we're revamping the farm this year. There's a lot of little projects, but it's, it's good. Um, he's actually an older gentleman, and his son's starting to take over. But, you know, his son's like in his 50s, and uh, and so it's kind of funny. His dad's like in the 70s. and pass the torch on to him for him to take care of and work with me. So that's been kind of a cool transition process. But I do, like, you know, I said earlier, I'm, I'm working on mainly prairie, um, like CRP projects. Last year I had, oh, gosh, I had one small pollinator, and I had another gentleman wanted a, um, like, a native grass pollinator garden. 
I did um, just small little projects for some extra income, but uh, it looks like this year might be, you know, jumping right back in for a little bit. So now, Jesse, do you work with the uh, BM Butterfly Habitat Fund at all? I'm not aware of that one. So I don't know um, how much it would sink in with what you're doing, but we we uh, interviewed them on one of our episodes here with Elsa over there at the BM Butterfly Habitat Fund, and they'll actually provide um, a bunch of free seed to to landowners to get them back in the pollinator program. And the seed is paid for, uh, you know, companies like Bayer or Monsanto and, and other companies like that who are trying to, wow. to give back. And it's just something that might help you out with your clients. Um, our podcast number 81 was when we interviewed them, and it's, it's pretty awesome. I think you have to put, like, a minimum of two acres in, but oh. – I mean, you know how expensive that seed is. Like it's oh, especially pollinator. Oh yeah, and you can do a bunch of uh, different different seed mixes. Well, there's a bunch of seeds in that mix, I should say. Um, so didn't know if you work with them or or not yet, but something to look into. Well, I'm I'm downloading that episode right now to listen to. But yeah, we <laughs> um, I'll definitely keep that one in mind. I know uh, Pheasants Forever also has a program called Prairie Partners, and uh, I don't know. I think mainly you got to reach out to a Pheasants Forever biologist. And um, I don't know if they have a minimum or not, but they'll pay a good percentage of your native prairie seed if you sign up for that program, too. Yeah, yeah. PF is a big help, uh, especially here in Michigan. I know our buddy Chad Thalen, uh, he works a lot with them. They'll help you even install prairie, uh, switchgrass, or, or whatever you want. But, yeah, that's that's pretty cool you're working on that. I'll, I'll know to refer to you if I have questions in the future. So. Right. Well, you know, I also have a friend of mine. He does a lot of um, – I would like to get in the pollinator garden thing. It's a, a nice niche business. But my buddy also does that, so I'll pass information on to him to help sell that to clients better too. So, Sure. Explain to me the pollinator garden niche that you're talking about. Oh, it's just, you know, um, like you have a homeowner that wants like a – literally the one I did is like 13th of an acre. And, uh, you know, uh, you, I truly like a CRP project. If they're comfortable with glyphosate, I just spray – I'll, you know, try like a normal CRP thing. You spray the patches, might work it up and cultivate just to give it a really good firm seed bed and drill it. But really, um, they're just uh, mixes geared towards pollinators, you know, more black-eyed Susans, milkweed, okay, um, yeah. flowery mixes, some grass because, you know, it needs to be burned. You know, I encourage these guys to burn it even they live in town, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm like, my, my buddy actually just uses a weedy whacker, and he'll just knock it down and try to rake it up so that's small to get the new growth to come up too. So, but, uh, but yeah, that's all, you know, good um, resi- residual income, you know. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I think there's one near my house that, that this, this person planted. I drive by all the time. I know there's some big blue stem in there. Mm-hmm. I know they burn it. It's probably a quarter acre. I, I want to knock on their door and find out what's going on, but I haven't. Sure. Yet. Yeah, man. Um, it's probably similar to what you're saying. If I had to guess. Probably, probably. Okay. Well, cool. Um, I want to move into uh, your your family farm and talk about some of your current habitat projects that you're doing these days here in the winter and, and early spring. Sure. So um, right now I own about 135 acres, about 40s in CRP, and the other 95 is mainly timber and a couple random areas. Right now I have three three projects. Yeah, three projects I'm working on. The one. We're working on a quail restoration, about three acres, three acres. Yeah, I think three acres. It's not very, very big. Cool. But um, 
you know, we've planted, I got a, a food plot devoted for doves, but man, guys, I planted sunflowers and we had a great time hitting the doves, but the t- turkeys went apeshit on these sunflowers. It was wow. incredible. I loved it. I mean, I never hunted them. I want to hunt fall season, um, but there's like 16 hens out in this sunflower field just pecking away at the sunflowers, clearing to December. I'm like, this is awesome. This is the point why we're doing this. Yeah. Um, we got a half acre fire break around the edge and we planted a short prairie mix because the short grasses, quail and pheasants just prefer and obviously deer will bed in there anyway. But right now um, we're going to try to burn it this spring and get the foxtail off despite how many times I mowed it, um, trying to get that foxtail off. We did edge feathering this, this um, winter. And uh, there's a lot of cedar trees. So we're able to release some. Um, well, the cool part was we we hinge cut a lot of cedar trees, which I'm glad we did because all the snow. I'm hoping my, the quail that I have and pheasants that might migrate in there, hopefully got some good thermal cover from those cedar trees. But we also we're trying to encourage more doves just for the sake of dove hunting. But we had a lot of bigger honey locusts and shingle oaks. So I went in there and girdled those trees because doves love to have a bare roost. So when they roost, they want bare canopy, no leaves at all. They like dead trees. And so hopefully that will encourage more doves to land there, but also just to get the high locusts off in general. And um, and we're gonna the one thing we're going to plant there, I'm going to try and plant a screen for the future. It's called false indigo bush, and it's a native shrub, and it's the only thing that deer don't eat because the deer will just annihilate all shrubs we plant, dogwood, elderberry, choke cherry, whatever you plant, they just yep. annihilate. False indigo is the only thing they, I guess, release some kind of bitter toxin the deer don't want to eat. So um, I'm gonna, we're going to drill that. We actually got seed for it. We're going to drill it, and, ho- and it takes a few years, um, but it can get pretty tall. I, I sat in one at a guy's place. It was six foot tall, and that's pretty good mm-hmm. to break up your outline, but also it's just good extra cover for the quail anyway. Um, that's so great. We're doing, yeah, and another project we're working on is uh, oak savanna restoration. And uh, my farm is littered with old wolf oaks, which is really cool because that was our natural biome in our, in our, in our state. And uh, I'm working on uh, – I apply for brush management. We got 20 acres we're going to do, but three acres is actual oak savanna that we're going to cut down all the shade tolerance trees, the locusts, leave everything that – pretty much cut everything that's not an oak and maybe a walnut. And um, let that sit and burn in a couple of years. The other third final project where we – I got a biologist buddy of mine who believes my North 40 is remnant prairie which is pretty awesome because um, that, that 40 only has had cattle on it in the past, well, 120 years probably since it's been owned. So um, that's pretty exciting knowing that land has never been tilled. Because we're going for a walk one day, and he's like, man, I'm seeing, like, bottle grass, and there's some blue stems. Has there ever been farmers that had cattle on? He goes, Jesse, I think you got a remnant prairie, which I'm really excited about. I mean, this is natural yeah, native prairie. So I'm hiring a guy with a skid to come in and shear the cedar trees, which some folks might consider wasteful, but we ha- literally have no market. Only market I could maybe get into is um, cabinet makers and, like, custom cedar trees. But, man, I got 20 acres of cedar trees, and they're huge. Wow. So it's like if they're big enough, I would love to have a log, but they're not that big, and there's really no market. So I'm like, well, I'll share it. We'll get paid to do it for brush management. And in a few years, we're going to burn it and um, see what comes up. So, but I'm really excited because we're able to work on the brush management this spring. So I'm really hoping that when we get these cedar trees knocked over, all this sunlight's going to come in, and hopefully, instead of moss, we'll have 
Prairie come back this year? Hopefully. So we'll see what happens. I don't see why it wouldn't. After, I mean, you're going to burn it when? We're going to wait two or three years to make sure the cedar's really, yeah, really you know, dry. Really dry. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Um, if there's any cedar loggers out there in southeast Iowa, give Jesse a call. Please do. Well, <laughs> but you, you said you're getting some of it covered by brush management. Can you go into how that works? So brush management is an equip program. Um, uh, really, now it's too late. To, well, yeah, it's too late to play now. You usually got to get it applied before mid-February, roughly. But really, um, there's different tiers of brush management, and we apply for the heavy, which covers mechanical stuff. And I'm, you know, um, it can cover up to 300 bucks an acre. And uh, like I'm bringing a skid in. And so if you wanted to mulch or to shear or to pull trees, that would help cover that cost. Sure. And um, luckily his rate isn't isn't horrible, and he thinks he can probably get the whole 20 acres in a few days, which I'm pretty excited about. So so um, still have some money in your pocket, but, you know, use that money to help um, in case invasives, invasives pop up. I've noticed some cerecia pop up my place, which I unfortunately missed. So I'm kind of making sure that, you know, Use some of that money, pay for like remedy or escort or whatever to kill it. But um, but yeah, but like the other three acres, I'm doing with the chainsaw to try. I mean, really, it's just it's TSI outlaw style that you just use common sense, um, leave good valuable crop trees. Like my contractor told him, like, look, you have four species to take out: cedar, honey locust, autumn olive, and honeysuckle. Everything else, I don't care if it's an elm tree or a black cherry, leave it alone. Because that way I still have some trees there to at least have something, right? So, but, uh, but that's the cool thing about brush management. When you have actually brush instead of a forest or a timber that can be improved, and it's all brush, you can use that that costure to help remove that brush and enhance that land. Very cool. And, and you mentioned that false indigo shrub. How uh, how hardy is that when it starts to get cold? Um, pretty hardy. Yeah, like the one guy. I was talking about he had six foot. I mean, that's like six years old, and it's you know been surviving ever since this cold this cold weather. So it's definitely um, like I said, you can drill it and you can buy the plants, but I I want to try drilling it because I um, I don't always want to try it. I guess I guess I could have bought the plants, but um, it, if you drill it, it's really meant to be drilled in the summertime. It doesn't need to go through a stratification process like other prairie or switch. So you could definitely you know broadcast it or drill it, whatever. So. No, that's awesome. You usually get a pretty good uh, survival rate when you drill that stuff, so that's great. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we're all we're all habitat managers as well. All of our listeners, that's exactly what we talk about every single week. Uh, I'd like to know a little bit about your farm, how it's laid out, why you laid it out the way you did, uh, et cetera. Can you kind of, I don't know, draw us a map? You don't, have like a, you don't have a Google Earth image up here. This isn't a way to get people on my farm, is it, Jared? <laughs> I do not. I do not. This is all audio, no video. Uh, all they have is the county at this point. So. Secretly, just has like this other thing streaming on Twitch. Like, it's there and there. I'm actually three minutes down the road. I'm going to nice. be uh, spotlighting your fields here shortly. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, to be honest, like I really, you know, I mean, I'll be honest. Like occasionally there's a nice buck that showed up. Um, you know, really the deer I, I see in my place are like, you know, mature deer that are, they're not Boone Crockett's that I've seen, but I'm happy what I have. But anyway, sure. um, but yeah, it's, um, I'm just trying to think the best way to describe it. So let's see, most of it's, well, I have most of it, uh, over 
well, about a third is roughly CRP, and that's mainly bottom ground in hills. To the north, um, there's a bottleneck that runs along this, uh, like a, a drainage ditch that leads from the road clear down to the food plots and the CRP. And that's mainly, but it's funny, it's actually, um, it's timber, but it's old oak savanna. But it's all red oak we're going to try to harvest one day. And then the north 40, um, I would say that this ravine or bottleneck connects to one half is all black locust and some timber, and the black locust desperately needs to be harvested. And the southern 20 acres is mainly brush. And it's, uh, it, you know, it's too bad. It's where the cedar trees are at. And uh, I just wanted to make a note. We used to have lots of deer and rabbits and bobcats. I, I'm a trapper. I love bobcats of the wazoo. But over time, I've noticed less rabbits and the deer just seem a little more scattered and I realized it's the damn cedar trees. They've, they've choked out everything. So that's why we're removing it. But it's good, brushy habitat. The rabbits I do have left. I mean, it's just random, you know, um, wild pear, crab apple, oaks, um, suppressed some uh, swamp white oaks. Um, yeah, Osage, you know, very brushy stuff. But I think once we get the cedar trees removed, it's really going to shine again. And then um, – where the, the quail restoration is right by my along the road by my pole barn. That's more on the southwestern, no, southeastern side of the farm. And we do own about 15 acres across the creek that um, is uh, needs to be burned badly. But uh, most of my CRPs in wetland reservation, um, like I said, mostly prairie, brushy timber. Um, you know, I would say ideal um, habitat, but just needs some, some elbow grease to it, so... No, it sounds fairly diverse, um, you know, in general. I know some of the stuff you have there is not maybe what you want at this moment, but it's not like it's a big monoculture, so. That's the thing. Like, 10 acres solid of black locusts. Solid. Yeah, and that's, like That's a monoculture. It is, man. It's like, where the hell did it? And it looks like it was planted a long time ago. Because if you look at the right, there's like egg rows of black locusts. Like, did someone plant this? It's crazy. <laughs> but, um. But yeah, um, but yeah, it's pretty diverse, and you know, I'm, that's the exciting part about it. It's like we can improve this to maintain it. Because uh, some folks don't realize that oak savanna. It's like you got to burn that every year because that's what oak savanna is. It's fire that goes through these savanna like these oaks that are in, like says for this new prairie to come up. So it's that an extra work to the pile, but it's all it's all for the greater good, you know. Honestly, I love the oak savanna. It's probably one of my favorite types of, of habitat, and I think um, I was kind of going for that with, with my cut I did recently, even though oh, cool. I have kind of like a lowland, wetland. It probably won't be what I'm picturing, obviously, but I, I just freaking love that. That's When that's when you have a, a nice oak savanna, I mean, it's just beautiful. Well, I'm really excited about this three acres I have. Because I, I did an Instagram video. You can go back if you're interested on Beast of Burden and uh, look what's there. But there's, like, in this three acres, God, probably a dozen wolf folks that are just hanging out. I'm like, oh, my God. And it's, it's, it just needs to be cleared. It just needs the trees knocked down and fire. That's all it needs. I'm like, wow, we can get this active again, you know. But I'll be honest with you guys. Like, I'm a little nervous because you got to understand, I have lived on this farm since I was 13 years old. I spent a lot of time with my dog in the back the 40 looking for sheds playing around horsing around and just exploring that farm i've known that farm like the back of my hand but <laughs> as you get older your hand gets hairy right so you kind of forget that mole where that was at you know and that weird scar you've had since you were six you know and um it, you kind of it gets woolly and you need to kind of look at it again so but so it's weird to know like 
I'm going to have like 20 acres of cedar trees on the ground. It's going to look weird. And I'm a little nervous, but I keep reminding myself, like, we're going to have more deer. We're going to have more rabbit. Hell, we're going to have lots of quail. Because what I've been researching, quail thrive in East Savannah-like situations where they have some shrubs to roost in or for their headquarters. They got low, uh, thin cover from the navigate through. They got mass from oaks, but also hopefully dogwood and hazelnut, all this cool stuff. So, you know, you got to have a vision going forward to get over the fear. Now, Jesse, is there a uh, minimum spacing distance you're trying to get in these oak savannas? Like how much sunlight are you trying to get in between those? So that's a good question. I haven't really thought about that, Brian. Um, to me, really – I can't tell you a percentage, but really anything I would consider a shade-tolerant tree that is filling the lower canopy gap of these savannas is what I want to remove. So pretty much, like I said, anything that's not oak is going to go away. So that's going to open up a lot of sunlight and hopefully um, way more growth from everything. So I hope that answers your question okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I've seen some different examples of it, and Sometimes I've seen them spaced really far apart, and some guys will put some switchgrass or some other native prairie-type setups in between them, and then I've seen them uh, closer in other situations. So I was just curious what you were working with there. I see. I see. Well, you know, really, I, I just – I'm curious what's going to come up. Like, okay, we trim this stuff back. Maybe we treat the stumps to make sure they don't come back or pour it on. Wait a couple of years, burn it. What's going to come up? You know, like, I'm more of a natural dude. It's like, you know, I don't want to force something that's not supposed to be there, you know. And It took yeah, me a kinda, long time to learn that myself. Oh, dude. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I try to, you know, for some reason this square is not going in the pig hole, the round hole, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but, yeah, um, and, you know, that's the thing. Like, I, I'm curious. I guess too many times trees you have, you put switchgrass in a savanna like that. I'm wondering how hot it would get. I mean, these oaks, they are, they're, you know, they've grown with fire. So you'd think they'd be used to it. But, well, actually, who was it? It was Eric Wong. He was talking about this on Deer Hunter Project. They were, they had a guy clearing the brush and stuff, but he did not clear the brush back from his wolf oaks. And he, you know, scorched a lot of his trees. It got so hot, some of them boiled. You know, like, that's a really hot freaking fire. For sure. You know? And also, I saw this poor, this poor bastard. I saw him on YouTube. He, um. He hired uh, the DNR. Well, no, not the, he didn't hire the DNR. He got caution the DNR. I don't know what state. And he dozed all of the brush around his wolf folks. And I was reading the comments, and I go, buddy, don't do that because the, the weight of the uh, the dozer can kill those trees. And that was the last video he posted, so I'm scared to know, like, did he accidentally kill his wolf folks? Oh, my God. You know, it's like <laughs> that's a scary thought. But yeah, that's why I'm just like, not. don't. Right, just go in their chainsaw and burn it, you know, like it's a little elbow grease. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, you you mentioned something there um, that's pretty interesting. How you're kind of nervous about what that's going to look like when those cedars are gone, and and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have that same thought. I know I did, you know, and, and before I hired the the forester and, and got my place logged, um, it's probably going to be a mess for a minute, right? But yeah. your long term goal is what you're keeping front and center. Uh, you know, the better habitat, the better wildlife. All of that. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Right. Well, you know, it, it's kind of a shame. North of my farm, it used to be owned by pheasant hunters, and they're really well-off dudes, um, you know, good, you know, CEOs, you know. And um, it was all prairie. Well, then uh, they sold it to a gentleman who took the CRP out, um, farmed it, 
put two hot confinements across the road, which thanks so much, buddy. Um, you know, and it really has changed the – I don't know. I've gotten over it. It took me a couple of years – well, yeah, it's taking a couple of years to get over it because it just, you know, I grew up there and seen these two – Ugly hog confinements, and you know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a Republican, conservative, capitalist. I mean, I'm, I'm rolling the mud with the rest of them, but I just do not like hog confinements. I don't think it's fair to the animal, and uh, also the environment, environmental aspects. I don't think is okay, but, um, but it's there, and I got to find a way to move on with that. And um, you know, all that's what really motivated me though to do this little mini quail restoration is because while well, all the pheasants, man, it was sad. They're just roaming the ditches to find somewhere to root to bed at, you know? Jeez. And uh, it's like, that sucks, man. So I was yeah. like, oh, I can do something. It's just two and a half acres. Well, then, you know, this project led to me, like, getting this, this bug in me to, like, well, let's knock down 20 trees, <laughs> you know? But <laughs> if hopefully shrubs and grasses come back, man, the pheasants and quail. And I don't care if I ever shoot a pheasant or a quail. I just, you know, I just want to do something to help keep them there. You know, it's like they're just a bird. They're just trying to live their life, and then some dude shows up and takes their home away. And it's like, as a conservationist, as a hunter and habitat dude, it's like, it's in, to me, it just should be a natural instinct just to try to do something. And you can do something on your own land, and you know something's out of whack, and you can create a lot of good by bringing back a balance, but also helping your local wildlife out too, you know? so. Amen. Amen to that. You're 100% correct. I mean, we we accidentally benefit a ton of different stuff if we're just looking to improve land for deer or, or turkey. You know, everything else benefits as well. But you know, I don't know. There's probably not a lot of guys in this podcast who listen to this who are thinking, I really don't care if a quail lives or not. You know, we're all here for the passion and the and the, ha- the passion of the habitat and, and creating the better habitat. I mean, at least right. the more I do this, the more I – I become uh, kind of that mindset that you're that you're saying there, Jesse. Right. Well, you know, guys, there's other things out there besides deer. You know, I mean, good yeah. lord, I mean, has anyone actually gone dove hunting? It's a lot of fun, and it, you know, every time oh, yeah. you buy and a box of amazing, delicious, oh, they are, man. My buddy Kevin, uh, my biologist buddy, he's been on my podcast a couple of times. He has this great. I think he makes jalapeno poppers out of those dove breasts, and they're good. Oh, yeah. Man, it's wow. good stuff. But every time you buy a box of shells, it goes to, you know, goes to conservation. I think that's so cool, you know. But also, you know, I, I, but everything, and it's so weird. When I, when I did consulting and worked with landowners and encouraging them, like, hey, man, let's do hinge cutting. Let's do edge cutting. Let's do all this stuff because now it's going to help your deer, but also help the turkeys, the quail, the pheasants. And they would just shut off. When you said it would help besides the deer, but I don't care about that. I just don't care about that. It's like. Well, I mean, it's going to happen anyway, so right, get used right. to it. I mean, they're going to come, build and they will come, right? So, uh, you know, I, I mean, I love deer. And, um, yeah, I've been out west in Idaho, and uh, my heart kind of belongs out there. But I'm like, yeah, I can't do the habitat stuff in Idaho. You kind of can, but it's all right. BLM. And I can enjoy it, but it just feels like, I don't know. And I, I'm grateful for what I have. I'm grateful we have a health, really healthy white-tailed deer population here in Iowa and um you know, I'm glad we had to hunt these animals, but at the same time, it's like, man, I want to just see what else I can do, you know? And also, like, you know, really what we're shooting for is early successional habitat, and this is what deer really thrive in. You know, deer, yep. it's weird, guys. Like, I've met my, my biologist buddies told me he's met farmers that thought, well, all the countries be corn and beans. It was always corn and beans. What, what prairie? What are you talking about? He's like, no. I mean, there'd be prairie, you know, 
there's prairie in the southeastern United States. Most of the south is actually grasslands. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. I found that I've, I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, and pine savanna and oak savanna up here and some woodlands out east. And then, you know, the actual Great Plains. I mean, there's this very diverse habitat, and these animals thrived in it. And so, to me, deer naturally are going to bed. I mean, I've seen the biggest buck in my life bedding in this corner of thistles in a pollinator. We've done all this work. We've done acres of switchgrass, hinge cutting, beautiful food plots. <laughs> it's the 17 food of pollinator. Where was this buck at in a corner of the farm that no one went to that had thistles? I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, we do all this work, and that's what you want, you know? But that's the point. Secluded right. area. A secluded yep. area. You know, it's just because... Like, we have one, another client of mine, well, the one I'm working with, he's got, like, 11 acres of pollinator in one field. It's funny how both fields are exactly five and a half. But this one field I drive through, um, we have this recurring cerecia problem. So, I, you know, every July I go into the backpack sprayer and, you know, soak the cerecia remedy. And I jump up so many bucks. They're young bucks. They're growing bucks. But they're, like, you know, they're just hanging on the pollinator. It's like they got cover. They got food. Yeah, they're, they're comfortable, you know. And it's like – the reason they're there, it's a secluded area. So it doesn't really matter. It doesn't have to be switch. It doesn't have to be hinge cutting. It can just be something that's natural, that the deer are just left in solitude. And don't get me wrong, like I, I, like my, my wife's family farm, the deer are so used to tractors and dirt bikes and four-wheelers. I mean, I had a buddy, like he'll pull his four-wheeler up to his tree stand. 20 minutes later, there's like 10 does on this little field of alfalfa. I mean, they get used to people, but... um. It just you don't need A, B, and C to get D all the time. It's not a formula. It's just listen to what the land is telling you. And I think the, I know the animals will follow. Well said, well said. I know we hit on pressure a lot, probably more than anything, uh, especially with our land plants. And I think, uh, like you said, that buck bedding in some thistle in a secluded corner. I mean, that's probably the number one. Uh, thing that he was looking for is that low impact low pressure yeah um he had everything within a you know walking distance for sure but uh that's great that's great to hear it's it's really cool to hear this perspective and from you know a guy as passionate as you so appreciate that now i was stalking your instagram and uh i saw you shot a pretty nice buck this last year is that right yeah, I mean, I'm grateful for what he he was. And I'll be honest, um, I downplay that buck because uh, I, there's just so many damn trolls out there, and I'm just trying to enjoy it, and I just don't want <laughs> bunch. I'm sorry if if you're gonna shame buck. I have friends that buck shame my other friends, and I'm like, you guys gotta stop. This is stupid. And that buck was an older, mature deer, and I was just happy as mature older deer hanging out. That was the best part of that buck. Jesse, you're talking to a guy from Michigan and a guy from PA. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Let me tell you guys a quick story. Let me tell you guys a quick story. Yeah, there's no buck shaming here, brother. Well, so I had some friends of mine from Michigan. They're family friends that came down to my place. They were saving up for their uh, preference points for yep. four years. Come on down. Well, this one guy, <laughs> it's not so bad for him. He shot this older buck at my farm. He was an old deer, probably five to six years old. It scored 120. And I'm like, hey, man. You did me a favor. This man yeah. tears in his eyes because he's I've never shot an older buck. This is such joy, man. I just love him so much. And I'm like, I'm happy to make you happy, brother. You know, but I was just like, it, it's unheard of to shoot anything over probably three years old in Michigan, I'm assuming. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's there's three-year-olds and, and four-year-olds and five-year-olds, but uh, most of the deer that get killed here in Michigan are one or two by far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, mostly, know, mostly one. Half of them are one, I think. You know, it's all in perspective, Amy. I don't – like we just said, we don't want to buck shame somebody, but it's like – No. There's that one guy who's like, well, how come I don't bigger deer? Like, well, looking at your wall, you got like – a hundred one-year-olds, gee, I wonder why. I mean, that deer could have been a really nice buck if that's what you're yeah. looking for. But, you know, I got friends that are meat hunters, and I'm, I'm definitely more of a meat hunter. I save my buck tag for a really nice buck. Now, if, I, if I'm not seeing much, my trail cameras are showing me, hey, there's this couple bucks. They've been around here for a couple years now, maybe three or four years, and they're not progressing. I have no problem taking a call buck. That's, no that's awesome. You know what I mean? But – um. But I'm going to save my buck tag for something special, you know. But uh, it's but it's your prerogative. It's your land. If you pay for that tag or you're hunting public land, your tax dollars are going to that. God bless you, man. Whatever you want to pull the trigger on that's legal, go ahead, you know. But uh, just don't bitch about it if you're not getting what you think you deserve, you know what I mean? Correct. Yeah, or if you pull the trigger, be proud of it no matter what because it's already dead and you're already taking its life and you're already going to put it in the freezer and eat it. So, you know, let's let's be happy with it. And uh, if if not, shoot some dose. Um, yeah. It's oh, always God, a great exactly. thing, right? Uh, Amen. But I want to hear the story of that buck. No. I believe it was your first one in a while, right? Yes. The last buck I shot, I was 15 years old. It was a nine-point deer. And, uh, yep. I have no excuses, just is what it is, and um, yeah, I'm just glad I got this deer, but but yeah, it was the first weekend, so in Iowa, we have shotgun seasons, and um, we have a four or five day first season, and then there's a week-long break or a few day break, and then there's like a 10-day second season, and as a landowner, I can use my landowner tag and hunt both seasons, but it was opening day shotgun, beautiful day. The first day, I took a, a doe. And we, I had a group of buddies come through and push the deer towards me. And I know some guys might get really, oh, my gosh, do you need a deer drive? Do you have any soul in a gut shot deer? My guys are really good. They, when they pull the trigger, that deer drops. And I, I, they become good friends of mine, and they respect my land, they respect my animals, and they do me a huge favor running up these does, man. They took at least six deer off my farm in two days. I'm like, thank you so much, you know. Yeah, I'm polluted nice. with does. So, that was the first day, and I had this, you know, it's a young doe, and like, cool, you know, dressing it up, and uh, and uh, I wasn't planning on going hunting the next day, but I think my wife, her friend canceled on horseback riding, and I'm like, because I was supposed to watch her daughter, and I'm like, well, I'm going to go hunt, and because my buddies were going back on my farm Sunday morning. So uh, I went back out, told him, I'm going to be there, same stand, same fat channel, I'll see you there. You know, in both mornings, gosh, it was only in the 20s, you know, it was pretty cool, and the sun was... Just a beautiful bluebird days. Sun was rising up. As soon as the sun came above the trees, you were just, you know, just fat and happy and warm, you know, and uh, just enjoying it. Well, the guys keep moving my direction from the south, and I'm in the black locust. And um, they're coming. I'm hearing some shots. You know, I'm looking. I look to my right, and I see two little fawns run. And I'm like, okay. And then all of a sudden, I just saw antlers. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I just didn't. This is the part I'm proud of myself the most. I saw antlers. I pull my gun up, and I just drop this deer. I mean, it just, like that, he was gone. And that was the part that I was really happy about the most was how instinctual it was. It, I didn't overthink it. Um, it just put the bead on, pulled the trigger, and he dropped. I was like, freaking A, man. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. But he was a hog to drag out. Like, oh, God, I, oh, man. I, we got him, dragged him to the lane, got him gutted. 
But even him gutted. I don't know how much he weighed, but holy crap, was he a bugger just to drag around. But he, he was a – I don't know. My taxidermist thinks he's a four-plus, four-years-old-plus. So, and we think he scores about 140. So, uh, yep, yep. Not too exciting story, but, man, it was a, you know, a good way to break the curse. So. <laughs> beautiful oh, man, buck. no. Yeah, Congrats. beautiful buck. Uh, Thank you, guys. Great, I appreciate that. Great G2s, great G3s, long beams. I mean, white eyes, around white face. Yeah, I'd say he's I'd say he's out there. I don't haven't seen him on the hoof, obviously, but he looks like an older deer for sure based on the coloration. Right. Right. Well, I have a sick joke, you know, he was chasing these fawns and I think he was a pedophile deer, so I, you know, <laughs> I did my timber service, you know. So. <laughs> Shoot his ass. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but I won't just honor him that way. He was a beautiful deer. Oh, so. Hey, I'll shoot every pedophile, so that's fine with me. That's <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> well, I guess um I want to I, I wrap this up normally with uh, a certain question. It's very complicated. Hope you can handle it. Looking to understand what your favorite tree is. My favorite tree. Could be habitat. Could be for hunting. Could be for, you know, tree gazing. I didn't give you a heads up on this that's on okay. purpose. So I, that's a good question. I'm trying. I'm kind of torn. I have lots of favorite trees. But honestly, how about how about your top two or three? I'll tell you my top one. Um, Chinkapin oak, and uh, nice. Chinkapin's my favorite because that was my dad's favorite tree, and uh, he, I really admire my dad and the mission statements he had. Like uh, he, um, I remember on Iowa Whitetail he wrote that uh, he had a mission to spread the chink the dwarf Chinkapin oak. I just like Chinkapins in general, but the Chinkapin oak across Iowa because it grows so quickly and produces so many acorns. And I remember my dad just planting, you know, trays of these chinkapin oaks, and I think we planted a bunch, but I don't know if they all survived or not, but when you finally find a chinkapin and how it stands out from a normal white or a swampy, you're just like, that's a pretty cool tree, and just, it's a rare tree, and I just think it's a beautiful, I think it's a really unique gem to find a chinkapin in your timber. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, I know when I was hunting in Iowa, um, the property next to us was lined with them, I mean, just rows of them, so they were they were going in there and planting those there for sure. Awesome. Um, I'm not sure we've had that answer there before, Brian. No, I think that's a new one. I like it. Uh, all right, Jesse, how about your second favorite? Second favorite. Okay. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is the capitalist side of me coming out, the black walnut. Black walnut. Right, I was, was going to guess walnut. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> well, you know, walnut, it, it's besides the money value um, – and I do have a, I do have a fondness for black cherry, but we just do not have the same market value of black cherry compared to out east. It's the damnedest thing. I talked to arborists, and they're like, "Yeah, black cherry out east, it's way higher, but for some reason, the side of the Mississippi, there's not a good market at all." But anyway, wow. black walnut. Um, you know, the one reason I liked it so much, I I had to learn that tree really quick, obviously, because it was a very highly valued tree. You didn't want to screw it up, and I've had some hard lessons with black walnut. So, but um. You know, it, it stands out so profoundly in the wintertime. When the when the, the temperature hits a certain point, it kind of has this purplish hue. And I remember my dad showed me a trick. Besides that purplish hue, you take a knife, and I'm sure most guys know this, you scrape the outer layer of the bark off. There's a dark chocolate color to it. And uh, that has always stuck out to me. But it's just a really it's just a really nice uniform tree. It's an easy tree to pick out for TSI, which ones to leave. And most time you leave them alone if there's a grove of them. But sometimes they get overgrown. But it's just, uh, it's just a really nice tree to work with. Very nice. Excellent. 
Well, Jesse, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on here. Uh, you were very gracious when I reached out to you. Uh, give our listeners a little teaser that uh, Jared and I are putting together a little project to honor your dad's memory. So be on out, uh, be on the lookout for that. And we're going to get Jesse's input on that as we move forward with that. And uh, can't thank you enough for that. Well, I'm. It's really humbling because guys, you know. <laughs> I'm I'm really a nobody. You know, only only reason people even kind of know me is through my dad, and uh, that it, you learn from that. You know, it, it, you gotta you gotta make your own fame in the world, not rely on somebody else. You know, but at the same time, um, it, it's kind of a unique situation to have my dad as my dad because um, he helps so many people. You want to carry that on, but I'm really grateful. There's guys like you that see value in what my dad tried to do for conservation and white till hunting and everything and uh it's just really neat i it's just and you know i keep having these re- I, I know we need to wrap it up but i keep having these reflections the past few months that i have so many questions for my dad and i took them for granted you know but uh projects like this you know trying to help my dad's memory stay strong and keep helping other people um you know that's something that i could uh, find fulfillment in for sure you know absolutely so tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, we talked about your podcast. Tell them where they can go to listen to that and uh, what else you got going on. Well, uh, my podcast is called Beast of Burden, and the uh, reason I called that, uh, it's about carrying a, bur- carrying a burden that's worth carrying, and uh, especially habitat conservation. It's kind of a double entendre about um, being also we manage the the beast you know what i mean and it's a burden to help them but it's a burden worth carrying but you can find that in any um podcast platform i think except for amazon and google i think but you know podcast addicts spotify um itunes is all there if you want to look i do have an instagram page called the beast of burdens all one word and that's where i I really post projects i'm working on i announce the podcast and just keep in mind, unfortunately, I can't. I can post a link, but you just you gotta copy and paste or go look it up yourself. But uh, but yeah, but yeah, that's pretty much about it. All the projects I'm working on right now, I listed earlier is what I'm on, up to right now, and uh, I got some exciting interviews coming up for my podcast. I'll let people know this weekend who it is. It's kind of the fir- the one person I'm talking to. I'm kind of hijacking the interview. It has nothing to do. He's not a hunter at all. And I think he's probably anti-hunter probably, but he has a really cool perspective on some things I want to talk to him about. So it's going to be an interesting conversation. And I want to try to incorporate him um, talking about conservation with what we're talking about. So, but, uh, but that's kind of, you know, what's cooking right now. So. Excellent. We'll put all that information in the show notes with all the links and everything. So cool. Can't thank you enough, Jesse. Thank you guys again. This is very humbling and fun. And uh, I have to have you guys on my show here soon too. Sounds good. Yeah, Jesse, we'll take you up on that. And, again, thanks so much for your time and working with us. We uh, are excited about the future with you. So thanks so much, man, and uh, have a great night. Thank you, guys. Take care. Good night. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. 
Check out our HP land plans there. We also have hats, T-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6 8 Western. Mule there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.